Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Halper. And I'm the other host, Aaron Mate. How are you, Katie? I'm good, you? I'm good. I'm good. You're around the world right now. I am. I'm traveling. Should I reveal where I am? Yeah, do it. Doha for a conference on Palestine. And how is uh, Doha doing? Doha seems nice. I really didn't get to see very much of it because I was really involved in this conference. What was the conference? It was the Palestine Annual Forum in Doha. You are there because you were recently censored for speaking out about Palestine by the Hill. So it's great the opportunity to go and speak to other people who I'm sure are censored as well. Oh, yeah. Lots of people. It was a very it was very Palestinian in attendance, uh, which was really cool. Uh, There were some panels that were only in Arabic which I wasn't expecting, but which was very cool. And it was cool when there was translation. There wasn't always, but when there was translation, it was great. All right. Well, as you know, you can go to usefulidiots.substack.com to support us and get bonus content. And among the features you get is access to the Absurd Arena, where you interact with us and other useful idiots and get to ask us questions. So, Wilson, what do we have this week from the Absurd Arena? So, last week in our excellent interview with Darsha Narvaez, Aaron, you had the quote that useful idiots has an audience that really cares about the world and that they're troubled about the state of the world right now. And living in New York City, the problem that I noticed the most is the homelessness crisis. And I've noticed that a lot of people who are liberals and progressives speak a lot about fighting poverty and helping the working class, but that it's also pretty much fully acceptable in those same circles to say no to helping the unhoused. And so I asked the useful idiots about this. And Aaron, you were definitely right that our audience cares about the world and people gave really great responses. And so I want to ask you two how we can make people understand that that this is a human rights emergency and not just another policy to be pushed away. That's a heavy question, Wilson. Jeez. Yeah, that's a really heavy question. Yeah. You're saying that you're you're talking about the fact that people walk by home unhoused people on the street without giving them money? Or yes, and also that in conversations I've had with people who do care about the working class, they also say having homeless people in the city will cause crime or make it dirtier oh. and say push that aside and make that I think that makes it easier for people to walk by people who are begging for help. God, that's a heavy question. Aaron, you have any quest- answers for that one? I think the issue just underscores that it's in everyone's interest to provide everyone with the basics they need to survive, to give yeah. everyone access to a home and um, whatever else they need. Because if you don't, then people will be desperate. And you look at it, it is more difficult now than I remember before in New York City to take the subway. And I do, I do in my own experience, see more unhoused people and they have to be taken care of. I mean, and, and it's, it's in everyone's interest to, to do that. And um you know, my only other thought that I think might uh, that like that I have often is like people now, at least like most like people who might be predisposed to give people money, less people carry around cash these days than before because everyone mm-hmm. can use their phone and their card. You know, not everyone, obviously, but a lot more people than before are just using their phone or their card to pay for stuff. And I do think there needs to be some kind of thing where you can like Venmo or whatever somebody who's unhoused because I just know in my own experience, like yeah. I, I never carry around bills anymore. I, cause I, cause you don't, 
because I had access to a phone and, and, and a card and stuff. And I, I, I mean, not that this solves the problem, but I do think in terms of like steps, I do think that should be done because I, I, I imagine that a lot of unhoused people are getting less money than they would have before, before the, you know, uh, explosion and people using their phones and their, and, and credit cards. That's a very funny coincidence. Just yesterday, I started making up a flyer. I, this guy, Paco, who lives near me on the street, I was talking to him about what if I can give you a sign that has a QR code for a cash app. And then, wow. and I, so I was wrote, wrote on the sign, you say for Paco, and then I would get it to this other account. And then I would just, I could bring him the cash each time. Again. Yeah. Yeah. That would reach more people. It would. And it sucks. I mean, it's, it, it sucks that we even have to be thinking of ways to give people the basics that they need uh, through like a phone rather than just ensuring a society where everyone doesn't have to beg for food uh, and, and, and money, but that's, that, that's where we're at. Yeah. You know what? The other thing I think is hard is that I feel like politic, like emotionally it, it, and on a human level, like giving money to people is important and then, and then at the same time, also, I, sometimes I feel like, well, this is just one person. Should I give my money to an organization that works on homelessness that will touch lots of people's lives? Yeah. And I also think that uh, we need to make the connection between spending so much money on the military and right. having cities full of people who are unhoused. And it's not a law of nature that we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars on all these weapons. And spending all these billions of dollars on a proxy war in Ukraine when that could be spent on repairing our cities at home and making it a better place for everybody. I mean, I, that connection could be made. It's just not being made politically, but it could be if we wanted to. Yeah. But it's a it's a tough question. And, and of course, you know, there's no. And we need- just need to be building more housing. I mean, not yes. even building more. We need to be putting people in housing. Absolutely. 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 You're right, though. I like what you said, that there's no rule of, of law of nature that says things need to be this way. People could have their basic needs met. All right. Well, speaking of basic, let's get to our four basic food groups. Katie, what do we have? Oh, I like that transition. Or Democrats suck. OK, so for this week for Democrats suck, I got Democrats suck. And this is a story about um, what's happening in Palestine right now. And just for background, before we get into the actual Democrat sucking, uh, as people hopefully know, uh, Israel killed 10 people, including two children on Thursday. And then on Friday, a gunman, a Palestinian gunman, killed seven people in an illegal settlement. Uh, Then over the weekend, settlers attacked Palestinians. They set fire to homes. Um, They harassed a lot of people. They threw stones uh, at least four Palestinians have been killed since the Janine attack, which brings the total number of Palestinians killed by Israelis since the start of the year to 35. Eight of them are children. And lovely, lovely news is that uh, one of the things that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu did in response to this was expedite gun permits for Israeli citizens. Now, uh, I'm going to go to journalist Sana Saeed, who has a great little video breaking down the differences. Um, in the ways that the State Department responded to the killing of Palestinians and the killing of Israelis. If you've ever wondered how political language is used to dehumanize certain groups of people and humanize other groups of people, here are two really great examples from the same institution and specifically the same person. 
This is Ned Price. He's a spokesperson for the State Department and specifically for Mr. Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State. Now, here is a tweet that was just published with regards to the shooting that took place in the synagogue uh, earlier today in occupied East Jerusalem. Note how Israelis are humanized. The United States condemns, in the strongest terms, the most horrific terrorist attack today outside of a synagogue in Nivyakov, which, by the way, is also a settlement. Our thoughts are with the victims and their families. We reaffirm our unwavering commitment to Israel's security. Israeli humanity and its right to violence is reaffirmed repeatedly, word by word, in this tweet. It's very emotional language. Now look at this tweet from just a day earlier regarding the Janine refugee camp massacre where nine Palestinians, including elderly women, were killed. Not only is the massacre of Palestinians justified as a counterterrorism thing, they're not even mentioned. Here's what Ned Price had to say when Palestinians were killed. We are deeply concerned by the escalating violence and loss of innocent life in the West Bank following a counterterrorism operation. We underscore the urgent need to prevent further loss of civilian life and to de-escalate tensions. So one is uh, described as a counterterrorism operation, and the other one is described as a terrorist attack, which obviously shows just a major double standard. I mean, to be fair, in some ways... One is just state-sanctioned terrorism, and the other one doesn't have state sanctioning. But you just see a typical double standard that we see from the Biden administration when it comes to Palestinian versus Israeli humanity. Yeah, I'm the I mean, there the fundamental reality of this whole situation, which is that there's a occupation going on. It's been going on for decades. Israel's only deepened it throughout the years of the so-called peace process. That is not acknowledged, and there's a certain. It's like it's actually, it's actually not only is there a parity given to two sides that aren't equal because there's an occupied and an occupier, and those sides are not, are not equal. But the occupied, when they resist, it's their actions that get condemned, and when it's the occupier doing the violence, which is the infinitely worse violence, that gets defended or or watered down in its criticism, and yeah. that's. That's where Democrats are no different than Republicans. Um, Nancy right. Pelosi uh, once said, or I think Biden said this too, that if Israel, if Israel wasn't founded, we have to create it ourselves. Yeah, like yeah, Biden, yeah, yeah. And Biden said that. He also said that he's a Zionist. But yeah, just like in one case, you know, they they're so reluctant to call Palestinians victims. I think maybe because if they did, they'd have to acknowledge that they're constantly victims just because of the structural realities on the ground. Yeah. But it's it's telling that he says our thoughts are with the victims and their families when it's Israeli victims and when right. it's Palestinian victims, it's just the loss of innocent life. Yeah, It's kind of abstract. There are no people there. It's just an abstract thing, like the loss of life. Yeah, that sucks, but it's not a very emotional thing the way that individual victims are. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he, and he also makes it seem like by calling it a counterterrorism operation, it's an inevitability or it's a kind of it's collateral damage for something that had to happen. So a lot of whitewashing, sanitizing, double standards, none of which is surprising. And this is what you called out in your monologue for the Hill that got yeah. censored, right? That's that's right. the kind of dynamic you were you were speaking about, right? Yeah, the fact that there's an apartheid state there and people pretend that it's not that. People pretend it's normal and that um, 
Israel is just pursuing security. And of course, they're per pursuing security when you're an occupying power and you're pursuing security, you're actually terrorizing people. Um, and as you said, there's no parity. And anyone who says both sides, anyone who talks about clashes, anyone who talks about violence in general, as if there's some kind of level playing field is actually engaged in propaganda. Both sides is the wrong side. Yeah, both sides is the wrong side. And that doesn't mean that we are dismissive of of human life if it's on one side versus the other. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about why one side is constantly living under the boot of the other side. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's interesting that the 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 the, the shooter, the Palestinian, his grandfather was killed by a settler. Not surprising at all. Right. All right. So for Republican talk, let's go to Senator Marco Rubio of Florida. President Biden is reportedly close to issuing an executive order when it comes to restrictions on U.S. investments in uh, in China. Um, but there's concern about risking further escalation. What's your view on how far that action should go? The Chinese have found a way to use capitalism against us. As, as, uh, and and what I mean by that is the ability to attract investment into entities that are deeply linked to the state. That military commercial fusion that exists in China is a concept that we don't have in this country. We have contractors that do defense work, but there is no distinction in China between advancements in technology, biomedicine, whatever it might be, and the interests of the state. So I love that. I love the idea that like someone else is using capitalism against us when capitalism is just supposed to be about open market and you know the, the best capitalist wins. But even funnier is when he complains that China has this horrible dynamic where the state and capital are intertwined. Unlike us, we don't have that at all. So our military uh, is completely separate from the private uh, sector, even though I mean, just looking at personnel like right now, our Pentagon secretary, Lloyd Austin, what is he a former Raytheon executive? And you can go down the list. And there's, of course, a revolving door between industry and government uh, in, in the U.S. Right. Marco Rubio wants to pretend as if that's just a Chinese issue. What's it called? The Chinese wall? Yeah, Chinese wall. It's a Chinese wall or ethical wall. It's an information barrier protocol within an organization designed to prevent exchange of information or communication that could lead to conflict of interest. Just ironic. Yeah. So Marco Rubio is basically pretending as if uh, this wall exists in the U.S., uh, right. China, and that's why China's using capitalism against us. Well, he should right. take a look at the, at the balance sheet of the military-industrial complex, which is raking in billions of dollars and has plenty of people who have cycled in and out of government because that's how that's how it works in the U.S. as well. Do you think he just expects people not to actually pay attention to what he's saying? I don't think he even thinks about that because he just he doesn't he knows that no one's going to challenge him like no journalist is going to challenge him for speaking that way about an official enemy so he can say whatever he wants and uh, speaking of firewalls I mean like that whole bubble is completely walled off from any type of criticism or critical thinking so yeah he can say whatever he wants so disturbing all right what do we have for isn't that weird. Okay, so for Isn't That Weird, we have a very weird story. This is out of Virginia, and let's just play the videotape. 
All right, file this one under one of the strangest stories I've ever heard of and talked about. Last Friday, we received an email from the mother of a player on the Churchland High School girls JV basketball team that an assistant coach on the team named Arlisha Boykins impersonated a 13-year-old player on the team that was out of town for a club basketball tournament. Here's video from that game. Churchland is in the black uniforms. Number one right there that just came up with the black block shot. We're told that as Arlisha Boykins, they were taken on Nansman River. Uh, this video has been edited to show you some of the highlights. Uh, Arlisha is apparently a 22-year-old young woman going up against 14 and 15-year-old girls. Now, we have confirmed that Boykins is no longer an employee of Portsmouth Public Schools. And since this game, the student athletes on the team and parents decided to just end the season. They will not be playing any more games this year. Portsmouth Public Schools did launch an investigation into this matter. The details have not been revealed by officials quite yet. Now, I spoke with the father of the 13-year-old girl that was being impersonated. Here's what he had to say about his reaction when he heard the news. Coaches, you know, always priesthood is kids you know about integrity and those type of things so i was just shocked I, I just need you know an apology you know because i haven't yet received one from you know the overseer of the program or nothing you know he just came out and just told us the stipulations of what was going to happen but there was no apology issue personally to us even in his presence. We're going to follow up with this story. If more information comes out, uh, those parents told me today that they are simply just seeking an apology from Churchland school officials. This is very upsetting to the girl who was impersonated uh, and she's decided she doesn't want to go back to that school. Wow, she's quitting school. Well, that school at least. Yeah. I, hope, well, I mean, I hope she's not dropping education altogether, but that must have been a weird thing for these kids to experience. You, their coach coming out pretending to be one of them i mean so my problem is i'm i very much relate to that coach because you know uh, i play basketball it's my favorite sport I played it for a long time and i love the game and i can imagine being out there and you see this opportunity to play and uh you know you want to maybe redeem yourself for your own high school experience where you maybe didn't play as well as oh. you you wanted to so so this is your opportunity and you get to go out there and, and, and you know show people what you got so i i very much yeah i very much relate so for aaron this is an isn't that relatable it's not isn't relatable. that weird but isn't that yeah. relatable isn't that inspiring at first yeah. i thought it was like a scary story where the woman like kidnapped the person like in person when they, she said impersonator to her i thought she had like tied her up and put her in a closet or something i didn't realize she just took advantage of her absence but uh, well, yeah, if you love the game, if you love the game, you're willing to uh, go to great lengths for the game. Yeah, and, um, I mean this. This is a step too far, but again, relatable. Oh, I have to. I'm, she should have not scored so much, though. That was she got cocky. She did. She get got cocky. a little too cocky. Yeah, Maybe right. she could have gotten away with it if she hadn't dominated to such an extent. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know what she thought would happen. Like no one would notice. Yeah, I guess she thought she could get away with it. Um, but uh, she got caught and we have the yeah. footage. That's it's it's uh, yeah. I mean, there's something I'm, I'm sure it was a really tough experience for the for the for the young people involved. But there's something yeah. too. I'm I sorry. know there is. Yeah. All right. For isn't that terrible? Check out this video. This was tweeted out by Russell Brand and check out what he found.
so for people who are just listening to this podcast, uh, that's a video of a bunch of uh, robotic dogs, I guess, or some kind of animal uh, doing push-ups. Yeah, dogs, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Russell Brand tweeted this out and asked, what are they preparing for? That's a great question. What are they preparing for? And whenever I see these things, they're they're just it's very jarring. Like, do we need to have room full of robotic dogs, you know, preparing for what looks like some sort of physical challenge or even battle? It just looks like they're coming to get us. Well, I think, I mean, those are, they're trying to use those for policing. Oh, okay. Which is really scary. Yeah. I mean, with all that's going on in the world, do we need to introduce the robot dogs right now? I'm, I'm not so sure. No. Yeah. I think we have enough scary things going on. But, it's going to uh, happen, though. They're going to definitely do it. Yeah. It's like out of, straight out of RoboCop. Yes. RoboDogs. RoboDogs, yeah. All right. Well, this week we have a great interview. The one and only Matt Taibbi, the co-founder of the show, will be joining us to discuss the latest in the Twitter files. Well, we are so excited whenever we have the chance to bring back into the fold onto the motherboard. I don't even know if that works. Onto the mothership. Journalist, Matt Taibbi. Hi, Katie. Hi, how are you? We have like a sign on tag. I can't remember. Like, do, did we have like a, a shtick at the beginning? I don't know. Uh, did we? In like five million. Welcome to Useful three. Idiots. Hi, welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm your host, Katie Hopper, and I'm your and this is my co-host, or this is the other host. I think I'd say that a lot. This is the other host. Yeah. People like our awkward openings, but Aaron does not like it. Aaron likes a very scripted opening. This is so he's probably squirming. You know, he 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 has the whole democracy now. He wants it to flow like sort right. of, you know, like a like a real news program. He but, wants us to talk about right. <laughs> Talk about banks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, people, I think with you, you and me, Katie, I think people really like the, the awkward energy. The, yeah, exactly. The two of us, right? Like we were always yeah. sort of on many levels. So. Yeah. <laughs> so so people are going to be so thrilled. All right. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for coming. It's been great. Yeah. Uh, well, you... We we've invited you on because um, we wanted to we we thought it would be a good time to have on a Russian troll, <laughs> and uh, you're obviously one of those. But uh, in all seriousness, please do tell us about uh, your latest revelation, your latest Twitter files drop. So the latest one um, I did, Katie, was about this. I think we we must have talked about this group on the show, Hamilton sixty. I think so. Yeah. Because at the time. Actually, I guess we started the show after this, right? This was a basically a, a think tank that was um, had some mysterious or, origins, which I'm hoping to get into a little bit next week. Uh, but it's it was one of the first sort of um, uh, confluences of Bush Republicanism and Clinton Clintonian Democrats. It was a think tank that was. It's like multiple layers of them. There's the German Marshall Fund, then there's this thing called the Alliance for Securing Democracy, which is was created by um, a, a sort of blue-red pair. There was Jamie Fly, who was a longtime Marco Rubio sort of uh, right-hand man, and then Laura Rosenberger, who was the senior foreign policy advisor for Hillary for America, and they had this kind of you know you got your chocolate and my peanut butter thing uh, where they they 
sort of uh, banded together against Trump and the Russian invasion and all that and created this thing called the Hamilton 68 dashboard, which, which was designed to track, quote unquote, Russian disinformation uh, and Russian influence activities. Just randomly going through some Twitter email looking for something completely different, I've sort of found this uh, lengthy exchange between the senior Twitter executives basically saying that this whole thing was a fraud and that there's nothing to it and that the Hamilton 68 dashboard, which is based on 600 accounts that they said were linked to Russia and that if they outed, Russia would shut down, um, it turns out to be mostly Americans, Westerns, Westerners, Brit Canadians, British, etc. real accounts of real people with very limited followings. And then like RT and Sputnik, it, the whole thing was a sham. So it's a, it was like a, a factory producer of wrong news stories. Uh, and the, the amazing thing about it is that you have this, these quotes in the emails from people like Yola Roth saying, we need to call this out for the bullshit it is. I mean, you never get something. Yola Roth from Twitter. Yeah, from Twitter, exactly. I mean, it's just, uh, if you work in journalism for decades, you might get something this this um, satisfying like 10 times. I don't know, maybe. Um, but I think this, this, is, this is a real thing. And then I think it, now it seems like it might be leading to some other places too, which is cool. And you saw when uh, people were saying when Yoel Roth was saying we need to call this out as bullshit, he got pushback from other people at Twitter who were saying, actually, we can't push back too much. Why were they afraid to push back too much? So, yeah, I, I sped over this, but the Alliance for Securing Democracy is a very powerful, connected organization. If you look at their advisory council, it's like a it's a, an amazing rogues gallery of intelligence creatures. It's got the former DHS chief, Mike Chertoff, former acting CIA head, Michael Morrell, who was going to be Hillary's CIA chief. Uh, and then there's a former deputy NSA chief in there. There's there's uh, some other folks. There's Bill Crystal. There's John Podesta. So they this is this is a, uh, an outfit that's very connected to the political establishment and the intelligence community. And they were afraid of making enemies um, of this group, uh, which was very also connected to Congress and particularly the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. And they didn't want to go to war with them publicly. So you see all these emails where, you know, one once in a future White House spokesperson, Emily Horn, uh, who's working at Twitter at the time, is saying things like, um, we need to proceed carefully with ASD. So it's basically, you know, they know it's a sham, but they're afraid to say it publicly. Uh, I was going to ask you to share some of the people who they named, who they've discovered on this list that they wouldn't publish. Oh God, the 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 Hamilton sixty eight list of so the, who stands out. Well, there's only a couple of names that would really jump out at you because you'd recognize them. Most of the accounts, I think the the thing that's really interesting about it is that most of them have almost no engagement. So there's actually a, a tweet in there where the head of policy Nick Pickles is saying yeah, he's got a name. Nick but he's saying I can't, I, we can't call people who have five, eight, twelve accounts uh, a massive influence operation, right? Um, but there are a few in there, like the editor in chief of Consortium, Joe Loria. Right. There's a 
kind of former Newsmax slash Fox guy named Dennis Michael Lynch, who's on there. Uh, David Horowitz, the writer, is on there, uh, of all people. Um, but The neocon? Mo- the neocon writer? Exactly. Exactly. That's so weird. Lefty, right, whatever. And then there's a series, there, there are a few accounts that were like followed maybe by the World Socialist website. Like there's a, there's a sort of an overtly parodic Stalinist account that's in there, but it's got like eight followers or something like that. And then there's a ton of these sort of small organic Trump accounts with, uh, with names like, you know, um, at Trump Dyke, believe it or not, or classy lady for uh, DJT. There's, there's lots of those. Uh, and I contacted a bunch of those folks and they are what they seem, they, you know, profess to be. There's a, I talked to a 73 year old grandmother in Florida who's, I think she calls herself ultra MAGA dog mom or something like that. So these are real people and they're from all over the world, but mostly America. It's just very striking that, um, that they would end up on a list like this. Uh, there's, I should add, there's also a lot of sort of smaller, like very small media operations um, on there, like the serious report. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Um, but if you look it up on Twitter, you, you, you'll, you'll, Fine. There's a bunch of things like that that might be like retweeting RT, but they're real, you know. Uh, so, um, so that's that's what's on the list. And that Lebanese woman. Yeah, there's a woman I talked to named uh, Sonia Mansour who grew up in Lebanon. She she told a story about um, uh, as a girl, her village um, it was attacked by I guess. Uh, I guess there was militias, right? Militia, yeah. And, and, um, her father, they were trying to get out of the house and her father was sort of advising her to, uh, get rid of all of their sort of pro leftist books, um, because they were afraid of having their political beliefs known. And, and especially her being a woman, they were afraid of like things that would happen to her and they fled the country and she ended up actually in Canada. Um, and she was telling me the story and, and she basically saying that this is the first thing I thought of when I heard I was on this crazy digital blacklist is after all that, you know, to come to, to a free country and have that happen to you is just completely crazy. Well, let's go to some of the ways in which all of this was portrayed to the public, because it's easy to look back on it now and just look at this as a joke. But at the time, the way Hamilton 68 and the Alliance for security and democracy were presented is that they were these, you know, uh, intrepid people trying to protect the country from the influence of Russian bots. And they were often cited in the media and taken very seriously. So this is a clip put out by your site, Matt Rackett, uh, just showing how all these various think tanks in Washington promoted Hamilton 68. We work with the Hamilton 68 project to really understand the foreign uh, influence uh, online. Hamilton 68 falsely accused legitimate American accounts of being Russian bots. Hamilton 68, we track Russian bot armies. 
Hamilton 68 are tracking this the most. Hamilton 68. I'll tell you what the Russian associated accounts were doing. Hamilton 68. Hamilton 68. Hamilton 68. Hamilton 68 looks at Russian accounts. A wonderful website called Hamilton 68 that tracks known Russian bots. Look at Hamilton 68. I encourage you to look at that. The Hamilton 68 research. Really interesting website. Students will really enjoy. Hamilton 68 has just been such an amazing resource. Hamilton 68 knows their Russian bots. Hamilton 68 dashboard if you want to track their covert accounts. We need more fact checking like Hamilton 68. Hamilton 68. Hamilton 68. They track Russian associated troll farms. There is no evidence to support their statements. Hamilton 68. That's bull. Did you note the one that really stood out to me was Michael Hayden, uh, the former head of the CIA, talking about how Hamilton 68 is, you know, really tracking those those Russian accounts. What what do you think the percentage chances that Michael Hayden doesn't know exactly what's on that, that list? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, again, it's like dumb or disingenuous. Which right, one is exactly. it? Yeah, no. And, and Aaron, I think you were right to talk about how i mean i apologize actually for smiling about this because at the time this was it was not a joke it's not a joke now like this is still going on they they were very successful in whipping up this hysteria this this technique really birthed a kind of a new kind of news story which was you know russians are interested in this and we know that because of digital evidence why right and it's not just hamilton 68 that did this there was a whole range of research institutions that are now dedicated to this kind of thing. But this was really the progenitor of all those news stories. And as you know, you can see, it's not just the think tanks. It was really every major news organization. Aaron, I mean, you wrote about this. At, I mean, you talked about this at the time, right? It was the New York Times, C- CNN, CBS, ABC, uh, MSNBC did obviously countless segments on this because Watts, um, Clint Watts, the, the front man for this is a a paid analyst for them. So it had incredible penetration across a very wide variety of subjects from Trump to the Parkland shooting to uh, to the re- release the memo campaign to all kinds of other things. Well, let's go to a few examples of that. And we could have picked many, but we're just going to take a couple from MSNBC. First, uh, this is from Morning Joe in February 2018, uh, right after the Parkland school shooting. Kremlin-linked accounts flooded Twitter using hashtags like Parkland and Gun Control Now to get into trending conversations. According to data collected by the nonpartisan dashboard Hamilton 68, the trolls then added more incendiary hashtags and explosive imagery to drive their readers to more partisan conversations. Yeah, none of this is normal. Also, I just we, we always we, we keep talking about how the Russians tried to interfere in our last election. Well, they're interfering and the interference continues. Not only did they interfere in the last election when we had Devin Nunes trying to release a memo to undermine an investigation into Russia. They were extraordinarily active. The Russians, their secret service, their bots flooding uh, with hashtags release the memo to try to interfere in an American debate to try to derail a Russian investigation. And then we saw again yesterday, once again, the Russian bots and obviously connected with Russian intel agencies getting involved in a in a school shooting to try to stir up unrest and undermine our democracy. So we should just explain what he's talking about there. So he talks about this alleged Russian bot effort to spread this hashtag, release the memo 
to promote a memo written by Devin Nunes, who was then a member of Congress on the House Intelligence Committee. And what Nunes found was that the FBI had relied on the Steele dossier for surveillance applications on Carter Page and then lied about it and concealed the fact that they had no corroboration for Steele's claims and that the Steele dossier was being paid for by the Clinton campaign. They concealed that from the FISA court. So Devin Nunes, when he saw that information, wrote a memo documenting that and wanted to put out, wanted to put it out. And people who wanted to, wanted to discredit Nunes's memo came up with this idea that actually Russian bots were promoting this hashtag on Twitter. So that's what Morning Joe is promoting there, along with this claim that Russian bots were taking advantage of the Parkland shooting to sow chaos in the U.S. Yeah, there's two things about that that I think are striking. One is that the Nunes, part of Nunes's memo, remember the irony here, is that he was outing a fake news operation. That's right. The, the Steele dossier uh, was essentially funneled to Michael Isakov, who, again, we have to give credit to um, for being basically the only Russia gear reporter to ever answer questions about this. But he, he, he wrote the first story for Yahoo, this reporter, Michael Isakov, um, about the Steele stuff, which was sort of fed to him. And then the Clinton campaign tweeted out the uh, the Isakov story that they themselves had planted, essentially, right, and then funneled through various organi- organizations. So that's like a fake news operation. It was sort of novel, actually, uh, the way they did it. Nunes outs it in the memo, and then when he tries, to, when it, when people are calling for this to be publicized, it's denounced as fake Russian news, uh, which I guess we should be surprised at, but but. Um, but we're not, obviously, right? We're used to this by now. Um, the other thing I should point out is that this stuff does happen, right? There there are influence operations. All countries do this. We do this. Uh, the Russians do have stuff like this. Um, and ironically, what I'm learning is that the Russian version is based on ours. But uh, But what's interesting about that is that the Hamilton 68 is exactly where it wasn't happening. Right. Like the accounts that they were tracking, there may be a few Russian bots in there, but mostly it's it's real people who are reacting to real news stories. And so what they were doing mostly was describing organic conversations of people talking about, for instance, the Parkland shooting and just calling it, you know, Russian disinformation. And I think that's an important distinction for people to understand. And let's go to one more example. This is Ari Melber of MSNBC in January 2018. Russia's meddling effort is continuing this week, including a propaganda campaign designed to infiltrate online debate here in the U.S. New data showing that Russia-linked bots are hyping terms like Schumer shutdown and pushing a Republican campaign criticizing the Russia probe, lending fake support to this effort called hashtag release the memo. Now, that is big news. Now, while Donald Trump weirdly denies his own intelligence agency's findings that Russia meddled over a year ago, this is a report that they're meddling this week. Is anyone going to do anything? Well, top Democrats sounding the alarm and taking the fight to Facebook and Twitter, Diane Feinstein writing to Mark Zuckerberg and the current Twitter CEO, Jack Dorsey, saying this meddling is designed to, quote, undermine special counsel Mueller's investigation. Now, the man who used to have Dorsey's job is Dick Costolo. He was at the helm when the company successfully went public and back before the 2016 controversies. He was warning employees about the need for Twitter to strengthen responses to abuse on their platforms. 
the former Twitter CEO, is my special guest. He is a co-founder and CEO right now of the fitness startup Chorus. Thank you for doing this interview. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's fun. Let's get to Chorus and Health, but start with Twitter, which you know sure. best. Why does it still have a bot problem? And does Russia's ability to use this platform so well concern you? So again, Matt, going back to your point, in the name of combating a supposed disinformation campaign, they're running a disinformation campaign, and you see the feedback loop. So uh, Alliance for Securing Democracy and Hamilton 68 put out these claims, and they get parroted and widely disseminated by the U.S. media, and no one is told the truth, which they're concealing, that their own lists show no evidence at all that any of their claims are real, and that basically this is a scam. Yeah, and I think that one was referencing Schumer's shutdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, there are actually a number of emails in there. And one, of them, I published one of them, I think, that specifically has Yul Roth talking about how there's absolutely nothing, you know, connecting to Schumer's shutdown to Russia. There's there's one saying, "I'll do another sweep for spam shortly," but as of yesterday, this looked like the right leaning hashtag about the shutdown, which only got the label of Russian because the Hamilton dashboard falsely <laughs> accuses a bunch of legitimate right leaning accounts of being Russian bots. Yeah, again, the mechanism is so primitive. And I think what, what's kind of shocking to me, and you you both have to, I think you would both agree that as a reporter, if somebody brings this to you and says, this is Russian disinformation, you're going to at least ask a couple of questions. Like, how? What's your methodology? Like, I, I mean, are you going to attach your name to that if if you don't understand it fully, that's what that's what perplexes me about the whole thing. Um, I'm curious what you what you think about that. I mean, uh, these are not people I think interested in educating the public. They're interested in running propaganda, and um, their goals I think are now pretty well known. They didn't like Trump because Trump put an ugly face on the U.S. war machine. They wanted somebody more polished who could. For example, not blurt out the truth that we're in Syria to steal oil. And also, they didn't like that he was calling for cooperation with Russia, which they also didn't appreciate. And these are neocons, and they see Russia as an uh, inherent enemy, and they want to do whatever they can to encourage fear of Russia. And this is a part of that. Like, when you so panic about an invasion of Russian bots brainwashing us, you encourage this belief that Russia is this mortal enemy that needs to be defeated and we can't do diplomacy with. And so I think... All this just played into that agenda. Yep, but I'm sorry to interrupt, but, but okay. Like, I can see that with Clint Watts. I can see that with some of these people. But Ari's not, I mean, how, he's not stupid, right? Like, it, why is there not one person at any one of these organizations who stood up and said, eh? I mean, I guess there was BuzzFeed. They did, they did a story about this. But did BuzzFeed uh, uh, criticize it or do they promote it? They did. They cr- okay. Okay. Yeah, they they criticized. Yeah, you talked about that, Matt. Miriam mm-hmm. uh, Elder. They, call, and- they called it. They cursed it. Didn't they say bullshit or something? They used some. This is not to mince words. Ex- bullshit. Yeah. Well, I I just I mean look. So in terms of media culture, I think there were just massive incentives to go along with this, and the repercussions were if you dissented, you were accused of being a Russian agent and called names, and you weren't hired for jobs. And so, you know, it created a culture think- where people were just incentivized to drink the Kool Aid. I think some people actually like lose track of where they're getting their information from and hear it's perpetuated so many times that they actually just think it's true. And then there, I think some people who 
Yeah, I mean, this is always a fascinating question. It's hard to really get to the answer about people's inner psychology. But I do think some people really believe it. Some people are convincing themselves. Some people think that they're like um, cutting corners, but they're doing it in order to save democracy. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, maybe, maybe it's because I, like I come, I'm like from an older era, right? And the the incentive structure then was very strongly weighted toward if you make a factual error, it is career ending, right? If you sign your name to something totally bogus, your life is over. You will never, you won't work again, right? And the the stories out there, of, you know, whether it was the editor who approved the infamous story in the Washington Post, the fake story about the the homeless kid in the 80s. Remember that whole phenomenon? There's a whole series of these, like where the editors get beat on a story and they don't they're they're forced out of the out of their jobs and they never work again or the reporter gets beat on something like the uva rape story and it's very difficult to keep working right so you you have this built-in fear of signing your name to anything that's fake that was always i think previously at the forefront of most journalists uh, belief systems so that's what that's what i don't get about some like some of these for instance msnbc broadcasters I can see silently not saying anything, but it's something else entirely to put your name on it. You know, I, that, that, that's the part I don't get. Maybe they just thought the truth would never come out. I guess, but don't, do you, well, maybe, I, I mean, I just, I just wonder about, you know, Matt, listen, Matt, either you have integrity or you don't, I think that's what it comes down to. And uh, if you don't have integrity, then you're going to overlook um, your own critical faculties to be able to, keep your status and you know if if you have a show on msnbc you're rewarded with a lot of money and some attention and a studio it's nice to go into a studio you know it is you know instead, of doing, this from your, instead of doing this from your Ooh. apartment you know yeah. <laughs> so you i know, would I, yeah that factors in not everyone can stomach you know doing their doing a podcast from their apartment so you know I, our, I, our I, home yeah and and the cool thing is for them is there are no consequences, as you say, right? You, no one gets fired for parroting propaganda campaigns like Russiagate and, and this iteration, the Hamilton 68 dashboard. In fact, you get rewarded. So, you know, it comes down to can you look yourself in the mirror? And some people can. And I, I'm sure they point to all the benefits they get from going along with this uh, as justification. Well, this might be a good point to moment to point out the story by Jeff Girth this week. Yes, yes. Uh, in the Columbia Journalism. Oh, yeah. This is a unique thing in the history of journalism, right? So Jeff Girth is a longtime New York Times sort of frontline reporter who covered all like the biggest stories in the, you know, the 80s and 90s, covered the Clinton White House, did all this stuff. Um as credential as a reporter gets, drops a 20,000-word story in the Columbia Journalism Review, fights for it for years, works on it for years. Uh, and it's that book-length treatment is just a catalog of errors, and it's full of on-the-record comments by people like Bob Woodward, who talks about going into the New York Post newsroom, or the Washington Post newsroom, and warning people away from the Steele dossier stories and having everybody just tune them out. There's one thing like that after the other, and the entire business is is freezing him out. As we as we record this, it's like two days afterward, 
And has anybody picked it up? No, nobody in media has picked up, even, has done even a 30-second segment about 20,000 words in the Columbia Journalism Review, which just, I mean, it's, un, it's, it's incredible. It's an amazing story, and it's devastating. Um, you can tell that a lot of work went into the story because Jeff Gerth goes into so many of the different iterations of Russiagate and shows how the media parroted unsupported claims. And then whenever evidence came out that undermined the innuendo that they supported about a Trump-Russia conspiracy and that Mueller was closing in on it, they just ignored it. They did not print the facts that undermined all the conspiracy theories that they were promoting. And you see a refusal to reckon with what they did. So Jeff Gerth contacted dozens of journalists and editors, and he says that he heard back from about half of them. And a lot of people, prominent journalists, refused to comment on the record about stories that they put out, you know, stories promoting Christopher Steele, the author of the Steele dossier, or stories like in the New York Times, which said that the U.S. government had intercepted communications between Trump campaign aides and senior Russian intelligence officials. All these explosive and really consequential stories, now the same people who wrote them refused to own up to them. And it's an amazing episode. And you can't get more mainstream than the Columbia Journalism Review. So it's not as if you can just yes, dismiss sir. this as like fringe journalists, you know, people who are on Substack or or, or whatever else, people on, on the left. Um, this is the most mainstream journalism publication there is. And the wall of silence is, is, is it's, it's amazing. It's, 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 it's very, it speaks volumes. And just quickly to give a shout out to Jeff um, on this, like the, con the contrast is incredible because you think about like, for instance, the Hamilton 68 stories, this is the, what they're taking advantage of is a new phenomenon in journalism where you're just lazy, right? Like, you know, you see these stories like uh, Kevin Drum uh, does a thing in Mother Jones. Oh, here's what Russian bots are tweeting about today, right? So he just goes over to the site, looks at it for 10 seconds, then starts writing, right? But Jeff Gerth, is, he comes from this other tradition, which, I mean, he, obviously we've had flashy reporters uh, in our day, but Gerth is like a worker. You know, he's one of these people who will hound somebody day after day and and to try to move stories incrementally from off the record to on the record, Right. To try to get some, you know, instead of having two stories, having uh, two sources to have three sources or four sources. Uh, the, this story is full of incredible like achievements on that score. Right. It's got the on record commentary from um, people in the FBI who are in the middle of this stuff. And it's a testament to what the job is. Right. And for it to be completely ignored by everybody in the profession it's just such an insult. It's, uh, it's astonishing to me. And there's something cool to me about Jeff being someone, he's in his late 70s, I believe. And he was at the Times from 1976 until the mid-2000s. The, the mid and there's something cool to me about this old-school journalist, a veteran, you know, highly decorated, you know, who, was, who was there at the Times in an era when I think it was doing more adversarial journalism, at least more certainly than it is Actually. now. Sort of coming back during retirement to call out a new generation um, that became very partisan, especially around Russiagate, totally ignored the, the facts in front of them to push a narrative that they knew was unsupported. And I just think, I mean, the fact that this comes from someone who's from an era of journalism that I think is, is no more, but that I think we have a lot to learn from 
it's very valuable. And he didn't have to do this. He could have stayed in retirement. But I think, it, and you get the impression, he writes a note at the end of the piece about, you know, his own personal impre- like reflections on this reporting he did. Which, like, never very, done, by the way. which he's never done, yeah. That this was very important to him because, it, you know, that he, he, there's a craft to journalism that he's trying to protect, which he feels was undermined by Russiagate. Yeah, I, I think you can read it almost like a, this is somebody who I, I think the profession meant a lot to him. I mean, he had dedicated his life to it. I mean, yeah. Again, it, it's mostly a thankless job if you, if, if you did it the way uh, people used to do it in newspapers. It's not glamorous. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff that goes on during the day before you sit down to write the, that is just, you know, it's, it's very thankless. Uh, but at the end of the day, you want to think that you're doing something that's important, right? And, and I, I think if you spend decades, as he did, working in this job and, and spending so much effort and then have it all come crashing down in this one stupid story that everybody piles onto, I think he wanted to try to try to restore some credibility and 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 you sort of issue a clarion call to the business to wake up before it's too late kind of thing, and you you can see where that would be coming from right from his perspective. And again, I, I it's I, I I hope there's there's somebody like a you know a Jake Tapper right there is listening to this who who feels like moved. He's a big fan of the show. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, there are people, they, they listen. I think they do. And I think that they, they will hear stuff like this. If they want to listen to us, you know, do it for this guy. Like this, this guy paid his dues. Yeah. Yes, he did. And we'll link to this story. Uh, it's very long. So you'll need a lot of time to read it. It's over 20,000 words. But if you care about the state of the U.S. media and you care about the damage that Russiagate did to the media and I think to the world, then you'll want to read the story because it's, it's comprehensive and very devastating. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. Great to hear from Matt. Like I said, what a public service he's doing in exposing all of these Russiagate frauds. And I very much look forward to what he has next. He teased it. You heard it here first, guys. He teased it here first, which is yet another reason you should become uh Substack supporters, because you'll hear an exclusive tease that he does on this show. He doesn't do it anywhere else. And he gives us a hint about what's coming next. And it's going to be good. And that's right. Go to usefulidiots.substack.com to subscribe for bonus content. Also find us on Locals. And we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at UsefulIdiotPod and use the hashtag UsefulIdiotsPod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. <laughs>